Philippians chapter 4, if you will turn there, please. And as you're turning there to Philippians chapter 4, I want you to imagine you're in a car wash this morning. I'm sure you've been in one of those automated car washes where you drive your car in, it does all the hard work for you. I want you to imagine that for a moment and think about what's happening while you're in that car. You know, outside of that car, it's literally a storm. There's water everywhere. If you have the one with the brushes, there's brushes beating everywhere. If you pay for the expensive one and you get the the air, then you have all this hot air that's blowing as well. Uh, And yet when you're inside that car, do you ever feel concerned or worried that the water is going to drown you, the wind's going to blow your car off the, uh, the parking lot, or that anything is going bad happen to you. In fact, it's quite enjoyable. Children love them, especially when the rainbow-colored soap comes over the top. Or, and so it's an enjoyable experience, yet in reality what's happening around is wind and weather and water. And so I want you to picture that as you think about your life, Uh, that in the midst of uh, a life that's filled with chaos and and fear and anxiety, uh, these words that you see on the screen can be a moment where there is peace. See, isn't it true that life is often like this? And don't you have times in your life when you feel this way? You're worried about the chaos in your life. There's distress. There's conflict. And what you want to feel is calm, serenity, tranquility, contentment, goodwill, harmony. Aren't those the emotions that we really desire every day? as we would wake up, as we would live our life. And how we can live in life where we see the chaos and the turmoil and feel the tranquility and the harmony is because of peace. And our world talks about peace all the time. A peace in the sense of absence of military conflict and Peace in the sense of being at one with ourselves and peace in the sense of, of all the injustice and all the racism and all of that gone so that we all live together in harmony. But our world often talks about peace and leaves out the Prince of Peace. And that is why there still is war and conflict and why people still have turmoil inside. Because without the Prince of Peace, without the peace of God, there truly is no peace. And God is the only one who can bring true and lasting peace. And Paul, as he starts to wrap up his letter in chapter 4 of Philippians, he reviews some of the themes that he has talked about. The unity that he wants to see in the church at Philippi. And the steadfastness he wants them to have as they face the false teachers. He also wants them to have this peace of God. And so this morning as we hear Paul and we hear the word of God, I want you, especially if right now, this morning, your life is not filled with peace, 
that as you hear God speak to you today, that the peace of God that passes all understanding will be in your life and guard your heart and mind. Paul begins in verse 2 of chapter 4 talking about unity and being united in the Lord. He says this, I urge you, Judea, and I urge Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. As I just said, Paul is starting to finish his letter. And as I've told you many times, like any preacher, he'll say finally, and then he goes on and on. Okay, So Paul has been writing about unity, about steadfastness. And now he's saying finally, he's coming to the end of his letter, and then he talks about it again. And he says specifically this time, naming two people, two ladies, Judea and Synecdoche, that he tells them, ladies, I want to see you united in the Lord. Paul had seen the division in the church and he wanted it to end. But not just in general, these women specifically. And he asked for the assistance of this true partner. We have no idea who this true partner is, who is supposed to help these women. And we don't even know why they are arguing why they are divided. Maybe it was something serious, a theological debate, a doctrinal issue. Maybe it was something very petty. Maybe they didn't like each other's hairstyles. No, I don't know. We don't know. But whether it was petty, whether it was something serious, they were not in agreement and it was causing friction in the church. It was causing friction in their relationship. And Paul said, I want you to stop the division and agree in the Lord. Isn't it true there cannot be peace when you're at odds with your brother or sister in Christ? I'm sure you've had moments in your walk of faith where there's been a brother or sister that, for whatever reason, again, maybe something petty, something serious, uh, there's division. Or you've been in a church where there are factions and there's fighting. Is there any peace there? course not. The peace isn't going to come until there's unity. But I want you to see where the unity lies. As Paul says, he says to agree in the Lord. That's where the focus of unity is. As we've already talked about in Philippians, because we are unique people, we have personalities that are different. We have preferences that are different. We have experiences that are different. So there's no wonder why we disagree on lots of things. And if we only focused on what we disagree on and what separates us, we never would be united. That's why Paul tells these ladies and he tells us to be united in the Lord. Because that's what unites us. There's only one God. There's only one Savior, Jesus Christ, who saved all of us. There is only one way to salvation, grace through faith. We are all one family. We are all going to live together in a perfect place in heaven with our one Lord forever. Uh, These are the truths. These are the experiences that unite us. And that's where our focus needs to be. And notice also that these ladies and others, Clement and other workers unnamed, 
had been by Paul's side and they had been very effective in proclaiming the gospel and advancing God's kingdom. But now they weren't because they were focused on what was dividing them. And so this is true. A church that's divided not only has no peace, it has no mission. Because people then aren't focused on advancing the gospel or God's kingdom. They're focused on arguing and they're focused on fighting and they're focused on winning the arguments and the fights. And they lose their effectiveness in ministry. So Paul is telling them and tells us, if you want to have the peace of God, there must be unity. But this unity begins focusing on what unites us so that we can be effective in ministering for the Lord. Because not only do we have one Lord, we have one mission. And that mission is the same no matter what the name is on the church building, uh, no matter what the name is on the denomination. The mission is to worship our Lord, to teach each other the word of God, to strengthen each other as a family and to reach out and tell others the news of the love of Jesus Christ. When we are united under one Lord, focused on one mission, that's when God can do the miraculous in ourselves and in our church. But we have to be united. And Paul sees the importance of that and one more time tells the church to be so. But then Paul gives five important commands to help us live our Christian life and to have that peace of God in our lives. The first one, again, he's mentioned several times. Rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This isn't the first or the second time he said it. He said it a dozen times before this point. And remember, when we saw the first time he said it, that Paul's in prison right now as he writes this. So Paul isn't saying to us as Christians to bury our heads in the sand like ostriches and to ignore the problems in our lives and to pretend like nothing's wrong. And when people ask us how we are, we put on a fake smile and we say we are rejoicing in the Lord and, and pretend to be happy when really we're miserable and everything around us is terrible. That's not what he's saying. Remember, he is imprisoned, yet he is rejoicing. The Philippians are having their problems. False teachers are trying to divide them. Uh, they are divided, maybe on those issues and others. And they were concerned about Paul. But Paul tells them to rejoice. But again, notice the focus of the rejoicing is in the Lord. So the rejoicing doesn't come from uh, us inwardly. It doesn't come from uh, our circumstances outwardly because our circumstances outwardly may not be joyful. But when we focus on the Lord, that's when we can rejoice regardless of where we are or regardless of our circumstances. And the way you do that is to really count your blessings. Remember when Paul, first part of the letter, wrote to the Philippians? He said, yes, I'm in change, but I'm rejoicing. 
I'm rejoicing because now I've shared the gospel with these guards that are next to me. And they've told the whole palace of why I'm in my chains. So everyone now knows about Jesus. He would never have had that opportunity if he hadn't been in chains. He also said, there's people out there who see me in prison and are saying, all right. Uh, Paul made a name for himself, but he's, he's in prison now. Now it's time for me to make a name for myself. And so there were people out of envy and jealousy that were proclaiming the gospel to get back at Paul or to be better than Paul. But Paul said, I don't care. The gospel is being advanced. And so Paul, even in the midst of his circumstances, was rejoicing because he saw what God was doing. And he was thankful for all the wonderful things that were happening in spite of his circumstances. The same is true for us. We look at what God is doing. We can rejoice even in the worst of circumstances. We can also even think of all the things that God has done for us already. And say thank you. And count them. And rejoice. And be filled with joy. And Paul tells us to do that. He also says to let your graciousness... Be made known to all. Verse 5. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. What is he saying? This word in Greek that's translated here, graciousness, has lots of meaning. It can mean all these things. Graciousness, gentleness, patience, kindness, yielding, leniency, not exercising one's rights. In other words... This word describes what Paul was talking about earlier in his letter in chapter 2. Remember, have this same attitude that was in Jesus Christ, Paul told us. Jesus' attitude of humility, who was God yet didn't remain in heaven and he came to earth and he became a man and he died on the cross for us. That humble attitude, that servant attitude. Paul told the Philippians and tells us for us to have that same attitude. And that attitude is reflected in this command to have this gentleness or to have this attitude that you don't demand your rights, but that you yield to others. You think of others before yourself. You consider others as more important than yourself. Uh, This attitude that Paul has mentioned previously He states again, and isn't this the attitude of of unity, the the attitude of peace? And then he says, the Lord is near. I don't think he means the Lord is near in the sense that God is with us now, but that the Lord is coming. The Lord's coming is near. And so why would he say that in connection with the first part of the verse? Well, this attitude should be evident To everyone. So there's a couple of ideas in the fact that the Lord is coming soon. You see, if you, some people do not yield to others or consider others or give up their rights because they think then that they're going to lose out and people are going to walk all over them. And what Paul is saying is don't worry about that because if you do humble yourself and if you do give up your rights and if for the name of Christ uh, you are. consider others, 
and maybe you think you lose out, God is coming back. And when he comes back, he is going to judge and he's going to make everything right and justice is going to prevail. So you don't have to worry about that. The Lord Jesus, the Lord of justice is coming. Therefore, think of others, yield your rights, humble yourself, and the Lord will make things right and even exalt those who are humble. But also, I think, this idea, you know, the Lord may come back today for all Christians. But he may come back just for you if today is the day of your death. And so we always have to remember that we don't know when that day is. So the fact that the Lord is near is true every single morning. Either in the Lord coming for all Christians or the Lord coming for me. And taking me home. And therefore, because that's true, we should live this life and have this attitude that's evident to all. And I think about it in this way. You know, when we uh, have a funeral, we usually say nice things about the deceased person. We don't like to speak ill of the dead. And so we say nice things. But isn't it true we say this sometimes? He already has spoken his own funeral. And what we mean by that is that someone has lived a life so well, and it was evident to everyone, there's no need for someone to stand up and say nice things about that person. Because everybody knows it. They've seen it. They've experienced it. They have been impacted by it. And so someone who's lived their life well, and their gentleness has been displayed to all, When they die, nothing else needs to be said. They've already lived their life. And we should keep that in mind. That when we come to the end of our life, that can be said of us. Uh, Their attitude, their gentleness, their graciousness, their humility, their humbleness, that attitude of Christ was so evident and so clear that everyone knows about it. And then the preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. You know, you don't want that to have to happen to you where they try to make up nice things about you. So that is the gentleness, the lifestyle, the attitude that should be made known to all. Then he says, don't worry, pray. Verse 6 and 7, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is a fact. Worry changes nothing. But prayer can change anything. Why then do we spend so much time worrying and next to no time praying? What's even worse is we worry about things we can do nothing about. I don't know why we do that. I I could maybe understand worrying about things that we could change and trying to decide how to change them and what to do and how changing this or that would affect this or that. Maybe I could understand that. But that's not what we usually worry about. We usually worry about things we have no control over. That's why we're worrying about them. If we could control them, then we'd do something. But we can't do anything, so then we just start worrying. We start thinking about scenarios and worst case scenarios and what's going to happen if this happens and what am I going to do if that happens and how am I going to cope and and the worry just starts piling up. Is there any peace 
when you worry? No. There is no peace when you're filled with worry. And Paul says then, don't do it. Well, that's easy to say, okay? But he gives a solution. Pray. When we pray, worry is gone. And Paul tells us how that happens. He uses these words for prayer. Prayer and petition, thanksgiving, requests. I think he's emphasizing the fact he wants us to pray. Wants us to talk to the Lord. That's the general word for prayer that he uses. Then he uses petitions and requests. And those are synonyms in Greek as they are in English as well. That's asking for something. Either asking for something for ourselves, asking for something on the behalf of others, and thanksgiving. And I think every prayer really should have thanksgiving in it because every time we ask God for something, we should remember and thank him for all the other things he's already done for us. And isn't it true that if he never gave us another thing, he's already given us plenty? The one thing for sure he's given us is our salvation. And that in and of itself is enough to thank him every day, the rest of our life, and every moment of eternity. So maybe you've noticed my public prayers usually begin with, thank you, Lord, for something. It reminds us that as we start to ask, that God has already given us so much. So Paul says, don't worry, but pray. And when we pray, this is what happens. We often pray for God to change our circumstances, uh, to heal us, uh, to give us wisdom, to change the circumstance for someone else. Isn't that usually what our petitions are? We need God's help. We want him to change something. Well, often God says yes, and he does change. He changes us by healing us. He changes our friends by removing the obstacle in their life. But you know this. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says you need to wait. Sometimes he says, I've got something better for you. That thing you're asking for, that's chump change. I've got something much better than that for you. So even when we pray, he may not change exactly what we're asking for. But I'm certain this always happens. If we are genuine in our prayers, God always changes us. Because as we pray, God may give us a different perspective on what we're going through. God may give us insight into why this is happening. God may strengthen our faith so that we're able to continue in life with what we're facing, even though God doesn't change it. And because of that, God changes us, and he gives us this gift of peace. Paul calls it the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. In other words, you look at your circumstances and you think, there's no way I should be at peace. Someone looks at your life and says, there's no way, you should be a wreck. How can you have peace? Well, it's because God has given it as a gift. And God gives it as a gift... And this is the ironic part. When he gives us that peace, it's then like a military garrison. That's the word that's used there for guard. So the idea of peace coming from a military guard kind of makes sense. Isn't it true that sometimes 
peace, the absence of conflict comes when there is a strong defense. In this case, this is what Paul is talking about. The peace of God becomes a defense for our heart, for our mind, for our inner being, our soul. Because Satan, in times of turmoil, times where we want to worry, he comes and he lies to us. And he'll say, does God really care? Is God really with you? He hasn't done anything for you. Why are you praying? Why are you bothering? God doesn't hear you. He hasn't changed anything. You see, Satan in those times where we are weak, that's when he will come and he will lie and he will try to destroy us. And he'll try to separate us from God and he'll try to destroy our faith. But if we pray, then the peace of God becomes a defense to keep out those lies. And when those lies come, instead of worry and anxiety coming and we start to say, well, Satan, maybe you're right. We're able to say, no, Satan, God's with me. I don't understand what he's doing, but my faith is strong. Uh, no, Satan, God does care for me. Look at what he's already done for me. And then that peace guards us. It's a wonderful promise, but a simple idea. Don't worry, pray. I mean, that's the simple part of it. So the, the next time you even have a temptation to worry about something, stop and pray and see what happens. The next thing Paul says to do is to think on praiseworthy things. You see, isn't prayer, it's primarily a, a mental thing. Right? I mean, I know there may be physical parts to it. You may kneel in prayer. You may bow your head in prayer. You may hold your hands and clasp them as you pray. Those are physical things. But prayer primarily is mental. You are uh, talking to God. You are meditating on God's word and listening to him through it. You are uh, doing a mental exercise in real sense. It's real. It's supernatural. But nevertheless, it's still primarily a mental thing. And so because of that, Paul naturally then talks about things that we keep thinking about and keep our mind on. And so Paul says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. The problem we have today is that almost everything that bombards us from billboards, to radio, to television, to social media, to the newscast. It's almost all negative or filled with lust or filled with conflict, filled with chaos. And if we consume all of that and dwell on it and think on it, no wonder we don't have peace. And no wonder at times we feel like we're so far from God. Is that God's character? Lust and turmoil and lies and murder? That, that's not God, that's Satan. So if that's what we think about, if that's what we put into our minds, no wonder we'll feel far from God. I mean, look at the list that Paul had. Again, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, moral excellence, and praiseworthy. That's the character of God. 
That should be the, the character of us as Christians. But again, too many times we dwell on these things. Things that are false and crooked, unfair, immoral, hateful, reprehensible, depraved, and shameful. And then we wonder why there's no peace. We wonder why we're far from God. So Paul says, don't dwell on the list on the right side. One on the left. Dwell on those things. And if we dwell on them, not only do our minds are focused on right things, it does start to change our behavior and how we feel. Uh, you know this to be the case. If you just watch news 24 hours a day and all you hear is bad news, you feel like the world's a terrible place. I mean, you feel like all there is is murder and conflict and, and destruction and death. And so you start to feel that way, as though life is that way. You start to feel depressed. Maybe you get angry. Well, stop watching the news 24 hours a day. That's how it's making you feel. Because there's so much more to the world and to life than what's shown on television. And that's why we need to dwell on that rather than always dwelling on what our world throws at us. The last thing that Paul tells us to do in these verses is to live what you learn. And this really probably should be a verse that we read every single week. This is what he says. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I want you to notice the connection. You want peace? Then obey the Lord. Lots of times we want the peace of God, but we don't want to do the work that's needed to have that peace. Have you noticed so far what that's going to take? It, it, it takes praying. It, it takes unity. It takes dwelling on the right things. Uh, these things we have to do if we want that gift from God, the peace that he gives, the peace that passes all understanding. So just in, in general, if you want to say it this way, as Paul does here, he tells the Philippians, he's telling us what you know, what you have learned, you have to do it. Isn't it true that all of us hate to see hypocrites? I mean, we hate it in our politicians. Unbelievers especially hate it in churches. And I tell you, when unbelievers spot hypocrisy, almost nowadays they expect it. And it's just like an alarm that's saying, stay away, stay away, and stay away. They never come to a church or will be with Christians when it's filled with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, like this definition says, is someone who looks very religious or very spiritual. Or someone who's always talking about things that they should be doing, but they're not doing them. And there's too many Christians who are like that. Another way to think about it is this way. We're not called to be sponges. We're called to be pitchers. In other words, there are Christians who will soak in sermons, soak in Bible studies. Uh, they'll soak in worship music. They just soak in all of this good stuff. All of that's wonderful. They'll even dwell on wonderful things. So they're soaking it all in. But as it comes in, it just stays there. And so the sponge just gets fuller and fuller, but it never makes any impact 
That's what we're called to be. We're called to be pitchers. So in other words, as we fill our, our minds and our thoughts and our knowledge with the word of God and with worship songs and with prayer, and all that fills us out, then we pour it out. So that we pour it out into other people's lives. We pour it out into our church, into our community. So that we make a difference. We make an impact. If all you do is study the Bible and learn the Bible but never do anything with it, honestly, it's worthless. Honestly, you would be just as good not to even study it at all. Now, I'm not saying to do that. <laughs> Obviously, you should study and you should pray. You should learn. But if you don't do anything with it, then it is useless. The point of all the sermons and all the Bible studies, all the Sunday school lessons, all the learning, all the teaching, is so that you do something with it. And that's why I say this verse would be wonderful to use every single week. Because every single week when we come here and we meet the Lord, we praise Him with our songs, we listen to Him in our prayers, we talk to him in our prayers and we listen to him in the word of God. We should learn something and then we should go out and do it. And if we're not going out and doing it, we wasted an hour plus of our time each Sunday. Paul goes even bolder. He says, what you've seen me do, go ahead and do that. I won't be that bold to say, what you've seen me do, do. But I will say this maybe, if you've seen me do something that's godly, yeah, by all means, uh, copy me. Imitate me and do that as well. And I love this verse from Isaiah. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That is where the peace of God comes from. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you give the gift of peace. And I am thankful, Lord, that you have shown us here today of how we can receive that gift. Uh, my prayer is simple. It is this, Lord, that we have heard and we have learned and now that we do what you have called us to do this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters who today do not have peace. And God, that's because maybe their life is filled with turmoil and maybe their focus has been on worry. Or, or maybe there's too much division in their life and their relationships. And so, Lord, I pray for them that you would give them peace. I pray that right now as we respond, they would uh, pray. And that, Lord, as you talk to them, then they would be obedient in doing what you've told them. And that, Lord, you would bring them that peace. I, I pray for myself and for all of us this morning, Lord, that we would do what you have called us to do. So, Lord, I pray as we seek your peace, we do what's necessary to receive it. So, Lord, right now is our time where we say yes to you. I pray it's as meaningful and as moving and significant as any moment we've had with you already this morning. And I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.